Hello and welcome to Here Now, a Whitechapel Gallery podcast that delves into the stories behind the exhibitions on view at the gallery here in the heart of East London. Each episode invites a curator to be in conversation with artists, collaborators and other thinkers about the works and themes explored in the displays, giving you special access to the ideas that shape the artworks. My name is Jane Scarth, Curator of Public Programmes, introducing you to today's episode exploring a new exhibition drawn from the Kristen Sveas Art Collection, selected by Norwegian painter Ida Ekblad. The display, titled This is the Nightmare, is inspired by the W.H. Auden poem of the same name and exposes us to the eeriness of night scenes, from moonlit landscapes to dreams to nightmares. Today we hear from specialist in Norwegian art history, Marianne Stevens, who is in conversation with Whitechapel Gallery director Ivona Blaswick about the works in the display. We also welcome poet Mark Ford, who provides insight to the poem that has inspired the exhibition. The exhibition is free to view in Gallery 7 and is on display from the 28th of August 2021 until the 2nd of January 2022. Nightmare by W.H. Auden. This is the nightmare crossing the border, bringing the cheque and the postal order, letters for the rich, letters for the poor, the shop at the corner, the girl next door, pulling up Betuk, a steady climb, the gradients against her, but she's on time. Past cotton grass and moorland border, shoveling white steam over her shoulder. Snorting noisily, she passes silent miles of wind-bent grasses. Birds turn their heads as she approaches, stare from bushes at her blank-faced coaches. Sleep dogs cannot turn her course, they slumber on with paws across. In the farm she passes, no one wakes, but a jug in a bedroom gently shakes. Dawn freshens, her climb is done. Down towards Glasgow she descends, towards the steam tugs yelping down a glade of cranes, towards the fields of apparatus, the furnaces set on the dark plain like gigantic chessmen. All Scotland waits for her in dark glens, beside pale green locks, men long for news. Letters of thanks, letters from banks, letters of joy from girl and boy, receipted bills and invitations to inspect new stock or to visit relations and applications for situations and timid lovers' declarations and gossip, gossip from all the nations, news circumstantial, news financial, letters with holiday snaps to enlarge in, letters with faces scrawled on the margin. Letters from uncles, cousins and aunts. Letters to Scotland from the south of France. Letters of condolence to highlands and lowlands, written on paper of every hue. The pink, the violet, the white and the blue. The chatty, the catty, the boring, the adoring. The cold and official and the hearts outpouring. Clever, stupid, short and long. The typed and the printed and the spelt all wrong. Thousands are still asleep dreaming of terrifying monsters, or a friendly tea beside the band in Cranston's or Crawford's, asleep in working Glasgow, asleep in well-set Edinburgh, asleep in granite Aberdeen, they continue their dreams, but shall wake soon and hope for letters, and none will hear the postman's knock without a quickening of the heart, for who can bear to feel himself forgotten?'
Nightmare is, is one of those wonderful occasional poems that Auden wrote in the 1930s. He was a great collaborator. He worked with kind of Benjamin Britten, um, and Benjamin Britten set the music for the uh, GPO film, uh, which this poem was written for. So the mid-30s saw this explosion of interest among those running things like the BBC or the uh, GPO film unit in the lives of the workers and a kind of longing to document their lives. And Auden was very much in sympathy with that idea. And he was very adept uh, at producing poetry in collaboration with others. And this poem has become incredibly popular. Uh, it was actually used on a post office advert not that long ago on TV. And the reason is obvious because it mimics the rush of the train in a very kind of effective way, the rush of those images in the first stanza. And it gives you the sense of being on a train, moving north. And Auden had taught in Scotland uh, in the early 30s. So he was quite familiar with the train from uh, train journey from London to Scotland. And in the mid-30s, he was obsessed with the notion of presenting the country as a whole, the whole country, somehow using poetry to capture the zeitgeist, but also the spirit of the times, but also to capture it geographically. There was a kind of geographical strain in Auden's imagination, which is present from the very first poems that he writes. And just after Nightmare in the autumn of 35, he wrote a poem called On This Island, which begins, Look, stranger, on this island now, the leaping light of your delight discovers... That sort of typifies what you get in Nightmare as well, which is a kind of hawk's eye view of the country. This idea that you could somehow observe the country uh, as if in a balloon or as if traveling in it through a train and could note down all the interesting aspects and somehow give a collective poetic consciousness to the country as a whole. What is it that sort of is so hypnotic about this poem? I know a lot of people learn it at school and it sticks in the memory. I think it's a good example of the way poetry can be built up by cutting from vignette to vignette, from sort of mini image to mini image. And that, of course, is really appropriate for a train where you're always on the move. Letters for the rich, letters for the poor, the shop at the corner, the girl next door. I'm, I'm imitating the, the train tracks. As uh, those of you who've, any of you who've seen the, uh, which is available on YouTube, the three-minute section of the GPO Nightmare film, know that it was actually John Grierson, the producer of, of the GPO films, who read it out, half of it out. And the, the other uh, actor as well, they imitate the way in which a, a train the noise a train makes. I think that my favourite of, of, the, of the early uh, images in the first section is the last one. In the farm she passes, no one wakes, but a jug in a bedroom gently shakes. It's that sort of beautiful transition and cinematic transition from the train steaming past a farm, not waking anyone up there, but the poetic imagination uh, noticing or imagining rather, because he can't have seen it, a jug gently shaking as the train passes. And then we move in the last section to this uh, rather moving account of the people in Glasgow who are still asleep and they're going to wake up soon. They're dreaming, some are dreaming of monsters and some are dreaming about having a friendly tea. Again, typical sort of oscillation between the, the good and the bad, the not so nice and the, the nice. And uh, the survey of the Scottish towns, Glasgow, Edinburgh, Granite, Aberdeen, Auden loved to kind of hit off uh, in epithets particular places. And he thinks of all this dreaming Scotland who will wake soon and they will hope for letters. 
and none will hear the postman's knock without a quickening of the heart. For who can bear to feel himself forgotten? Terrific poem. I can understand why it inspired artists, uh, and so many indeed, and I hope you enjoy the exhibition. Thank you. We now hear from Ivona Blaswick in conversation with Marianne Stevens about highlights from the exhibition. My name is Ivona Blaswick. I'm director of the Whitechapel Gallery. And we're here today to talk about this is the Nightmail. It's one of four displays from a collection put together by Christian Sveas in his native country of Norway. The Whitechapel Gallery is a museum without a collection, so we've established a platform for guest collections from all over the world. And one of the things that that enables us to do is to take some curatorial adventures with presenting works that the public would never normally have access to. We've discovered that the curators who really challenge the boundaries are inevitably artists. And the first artist to look at and display masterpieces from the Christian Sveas art collection is a painter from Norway called Ida Ekblad. And she leapt at the chance to get involved, to really immerse herself in this very remarkable collection and its premiere in Britain. And every work of art that she selected is in some way on the topic of the night. And it might be as a portal to the cosmic sublime. It could be as the space of transgression. It could be of the night of insomnia, of nightmares and dreams, or of the supernatural. And I'm delighted that Marianne Stevens is here to talk with us about the meaning, the nature, and the origin of some of these great painters. And I wondered, first of all, if you could tell us what interested you in this this very little-known region of art? I think one of the things that certainly galvanised my interest in this region, um, as far as its art, and it's more widely its culture is concerned, is that it was so little-known. And I've always been intrigued by the question, which or the question mark that hangs over these things. Why not? Uh, and the more I got to know the work... Uh, particularly in the visual field, but also literary and musical world, the more I was aware that the work that was being produced was of incredibly high quality, equally demanding of our attention, and very capable of expressing the wide range of concerns which Nordic countries in general, but Norway in particular, had really from the latter part of the 18th century onwards. So you're tracking issues of national identity, and I don't mean that in a patriotic flag-waving sense. This we have to put into its historical context. This is much more individual Nordic countries finding their own voices. And that in itself is a fascinating cultural history, and it, it comes out very well expressed in the visual arts, particularly, for example, in Norway. And I would say that there are two main aspects of that. One is a deep connection to the landscape. And then the other is a kind of picturing of society, sort of genres or, or aspects of society that are also in danger of disappearing because of industrialization. But if we go to perhaps the, 
the earliest artist in the show, Johann Christian Dahl. We have two beautiful paintings, one of a waterfall near Tinny, which is a forest scene, and the other is a very calm picture, actually of Dresden in the moonlight. These works were made in 1831 and 1823, respectively. So that, I think, is probably the earliest painting in the show. And his contemporary, Adolf Tiedemann, mm-hmm. he complements those scenes with scenes of typical activities. And we have a beautiful painting of night fishing, where a group of fishers will go out lit by the moon and burn a lantern yes. and bring the fish to the surface. And there's a, he's a fantastic quote. He's, he laments, many a custom gone from daily life, many beautiful national costumes exchanged with ridiculous, ugly new fashions. So there seems to be a kind of nostalgia or a fear about these ways of life disappearing. Oh, I think absolutely. And it's found not only in Tiedemann's paintings. And of course, Tiedemann is a fascinating artist because he was primarily a genre painter, a painter of, you know, everyday life. Uh, people being buried, people being carted across coffins, being carted across lakes and things like that. But he also collaborated with the next generation of landscape, Norwegian, great Norwegian landscape, and marine painter, Gouda. And uh, the two of them produced these, probably one of the best-known paintings in Norwegian 19th-century art, which is the Bridal Procession, where Tiedemann does all the, the figures in the boat and... The mountainous landscape behind is Gouda. Oh, really? But Tiedemann's concern for the loss of uh, tradition and local custom is paralleled in, for example, the move as early as the first publication in 1841 of Norwegian folktales, which was brought together by Asbjornsson and Mo, who travelled around Norway during the 1830s to collect Norwegian folktales, which they then published. And that, of course, triggered a whole interest in folklore, folk subject matter for paintings, folkloric painting subject matter, and so on. So there was really a move. I would say in terms of the threat of industrialization, there was a sort of tentative modernization, but industrialization per se comes a bit later to Norway, even though it had huge wealth coming from fishing, from timber, and from shipping. But when you get into the 1880s and 1890s, then it becomes absolutely critical. And what I find so interesting about Christian Sveas's collection is that he should have bought this Dahl painting, uh, going back to that, of the waterfalls, because it has got a wood pulp mill perched above the waterfall, using the force of the water, of course, to drive it. And that is exactly where his grandfather established his fortune. Um, so that is a, a lovely link. Astrup says also, through memory, landscape, everyday activity imbued with mysticism. Mm. So could you say something about that? What do they mean by that? I think for the generation which precedes Astrup, which is this neo-romantic, there is a certain element of mysticism insofar as several of the artists, particularly Harriet Bakker and Eilif Pettersson, were absolutely, and Skredsvig actually, were captivated by the quality, almost the emotional sentiment which twilight in the wonderful northern summer light of the nights imbues in the landscape. And so it does take on a poetic component. And I think that connection with a kind of existential relationship with the natural world 
of course, manifests itself most famously and most powerfully in Edvard Munch, <laughs> the artist that we haven't spoke about yet. But there's three paintings in our display by Munch. And they show him both as a fantastic, uh, his ability to capture landscape, but also to capture the human figure. Mm. Um, and they come together in a very beautiful painting called Autumn Rain of 1892. And you can really see here the relationship both with, I think, Impressionism and then the Expressionism that was to come. That to me, he's someone who bridges those two centuries and also connects the state of the human condition with his ability to capture effects of light and the wet street at night or the forest at dusk. And there you've got a much more relationship with states of being, I think. Mm. Yes, I, I mean, Munch, uh, particularly in that painting, of course, it comes shortly after he'd been in Paris and had been aware of Impressionism and Neo-Impressionism, both of which have a major impact on him. And there is a very wonderful moment where, towards the end of his stay in Paris, I think it's in 1890, he travels down to the south coast of France, and rather than painting, you know, the south coast a la Monet at Antibes or something like that with brilliant colours, he actually paints the city at night. And you really do get the sense of his interest in what effect does light have on how we perceive the urban urban world, I think I call it, because it has to do with both its inhabitants and its physical structure. And that's very much what you have in that painting. Although I'm interested equally in the portrait which Christian Sveers bought, the portrait of a boy, which is really fascinating because that comes at a time when he was up at Warnemunde and also staying just outside Lübeck and having a friendship established with a wonderful dentist called Dr. Linda. And Dr. Linda not only patronised him and commissioned a decorative cycle from him, but also uh, commissioned a portrait of his sons. And this picture very much, it seems to me, relates to that. So what it is basically saying is, these paintings very much demonstrate the international nature of, of Munch, that he bestrides the two, to the two centuries, but at the same time is acutely aware that life is bigger than just art in Norway. And he made that conscious decision. I mean, just as Astrup decides to go back to Jolster, Munch decides to go to Berlin and he establishes his international reputation on the platform of Berlin in 1892. I'm going to turn now to two storytellers. Mm -hmm. Uh, Andreas Bloch, who's, again, really a 19th century painter, and we've got on a very mysterious painting of a young boy being scooped up by a man with a helmet as he escapes ghosts. There are these spirits which are raising themselves out of a moonlit forest oh, to yes. apparently kind of kidnap this boy. Mm -hmm. And um, also Theodore Kittelson, one of the great stars of this exhibition, who really goes into the supernatural. And we see trolls and fairies and these wonderful beings, a sort of cyclops figure with one bright red eye looming out of the canvas. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and then he also does this very wonderful series of lithographs. Do animals have souls? Yes. So that's a whole other section of the show, I think, which is really fascinating, these wonderful narratives. Mm. Well, it takes one into the world of narratives which crossover into myth and fairy tale and remind one that 
uh, it's in the dark that you tend to tell these tales around a fire at night and that these are the images that can be conjured up. And so I think in the case of the block, it's an extraordinary work because it was unknown to me. And when I first looked, I thought, gosh, this reminds me of sort of Delacroix, Mazeppa or somebody like that. What is it? And then I saw it was a helmeted figure on horseback with a boy and wondered, is this some Viking tale or what's going on here or medieval saga? Um, it has got this wonderful sense of mystery. Where is Where has the child come from? Where is the child going? Where are they going together? Is the child going to survive or is it like the elfin king? The child is being ridden to his death. That has that very particular quality to it. As far as Kittleson is concerned, he is one of those other really important figures, much admired by artists of his own generation and of the junior generation. I mean, Nikolai Astrup, huge admiration for Kittleson. And I think what you find is that you're dealing with an artist who was absolutely had his finger on the pulse of that mythic world and had this amazing ability to be able to conjure it up, often in a very, very limited palette, watercolour, pen and ink drawing, watercolour wash, often nearly monochrome, but with this sense of foreboding and looming. The image of the wood troll, for example, and Kittleson is great on trolls, uh, reminds one that the troll, of course, runs absolutely all the way through Norwegian mythology from you know, medieval times right the way through to the present day, the troll is still returned to on a regular basis, both in the arts and also in popular form. But in terms of Kittleson, I think also we are dealing here with an artist who understood how you could evoke, how you could make the landscape transform into either a human figure or a mythic figure, like a troll. And this symbiosis between nature, landscape, and the human being is really, again, part and parcel of the Nordic mentality. And actually, I find it very interesting that whereas Kittleson is quite overt, if you like, in his commitment to the troll, if I could put it that way, going back to Astrup, it's really interesting that he doesn't paint trolls but he paints intimations of trolls. So for him, as the next generation, he's moving one step further along the route that Kittleson had taken, which is that when he, for example, in a marvellous bonfire painting of 1916, has a figure of a man standing caught in the flames, in the light of the flames, with his shadow cast onto a large rock behind a huge boulder, he changes from being a human being into a mm. troll. Mm -hmm. And it's that sort of connection, if you like, which you find so often in these artists. We're going to finish with a contemporary Norwegian painter called Garda Eide Einarsson. And interestingly, he left Norway. He lives between Tokyo and New York. And he is also an abstract painter. He presents one black monochrome, it's very shiny, it looks very plastic, mm. it's reflective, it's folded into a grid, and there is paint dripping from it. It looks abstract, but actually what we see here, the title is Tarp, 
we see something which really relates to politics, to street culture. The paint is clearly using a spray can, so it, it relates, I think, to graffiti. And the surface is actually a store-bought piece of tarpaulin, which has been folded in its packet, and he's undone it to create this kind of almost another take on Malevich's Black Square. But it's full of cultural resonance. Were you aware of this artist's work? No, to be honest, I wasn't. And it now absolutely made me think I've got to go and learn more and see more. And for me, I thought what was fascinating was not just the reference to the world of the street and the social charge of the world of the street, but also the fact that if it's tarp, it's tarpauling, it's a cover. It takes us back to the title of the exhibition because it suggests that what dark does is it covers up, it obscures. And if you have a piece of tarpaulin, the question is, if you lift the corner, what lies behind? What is going to be revealed? And of course, in a sense, that is exactly the notion of night and what night holds across the board. And I think that actually what's fascinating, both in the selection that's been made from Christian Sveas's collection, but also what it tells us about Norwegian collecting. And I was meditating on other key collections that have been made in, in Norway in the past few decades. And it, it is absolutely fascinating that Christian Sveas has started from what was quite a conventional starting point of wonderful historical silver and old glass and then moved into the world of 19th century and early 20th century Norwegian art, which was being collected back at the time of Rasmus Meyer in 1908, just as much as it has been more recently. But then what he sees, as has have a, a few of his fellow Norwegian contemporary collectors, that there really is a need to underpin or underscore the connection that lies between that older art and what is happening in Norway today, which is a very exciting and fascinating scene from an artistic point of view. Obviously, now cast within the broad international context, which is how, why, with somebody like Einarsson, he's working in the States, and yet he still somehow can resonate within the context of an exhibition and a collection, which is first and foremost rooted in Norway. We can see all of these extraordinary masterpieces in dialogue with contemporary art from around the world. There are some 30 or 40 different artists all presented together as if in three train carriages. And I think it's an amazing way of opening the door to a really quite under-researched and under-exposed but absolutely vital part of our recent art history. This display will be followed by three further displays. The second will be selected by the Polish artist, Paulina Orlowska. In the summer, we'll have British artist Hervin Anderson, and then finally Donna Juanca, who hails from Mexico. So we'll have three new perspectives on what is a really astonishing, I think, body of work. Thank you so much for sharing your extraordinary expertise with us on this little journey through Norwegian masterpieces. Thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of Here Now. You can find all of our other episodes online at www.whitechapelgallery.org, on the Bloomberg Connects app, as well as iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher and Soundcloud. Don't forget to visit the exhibition This is the Night Mail on display from the 28th of August 2021 until the 2nd of January 2022. Bye for now.